1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks very, very much for being with me today. I just finished talking with Phaedra Daifa about her new book, Masters of Uncertainty, Weather Forecasters, and the Quest for Ground Truth. This came out in the um, year 2015 with the University of Chicago Press. Now this is a book that works really interestingly on two different levels and those levels also mutually inform and co-create each other. On one level, what Phaedra does is take us into a really intricately woven account of the practices and conditions of work and of practice and of knowledge-making that are undertaken by a community of practitioners who collectively produce an object that many of us consume daily without really necessarily thinking about the contexts and the significance of the context of production of that object, and that is the weather forecast. One of the things that you'll hear us talking about in the next hour is for me the way that really thinking and paying attention really carefully to the practices of these weather forecasters for me, changes what I'm doing when I look at this object every morning. Um, And so it's a really, really cool and I think a very interesting and very relevant and very fascinating case study. Whether you are someone who thinks about and experiences the weather, right, and and who among us um, is not a person like that, um, or whether you are a scholar of or someone who's interested in STS, the study is very, very um, carefully embedded in a context of the historiography um, and social study of science that's um, very, very interesting in terms of kind of enriching how we think about and think with those fields. On another level, what the study does is it uses this case in order to develop a theory of uh, decision-making, right? So this is a sociological study that uses weather forecasting to come up with a model and a conceptual way of thinking about what decision-making is, how it works, what it does. And so what you'll hear by the end of the interview Is um, the way that the book uses most of its chapters to work out this really interesting, careful theory of decision making as a social practice, um, as something that's habitual and practical. Um, And then toward the end of the book, kind of tries out this theory in other fields that are quite different um, from weather forecasting, but that are also based on decision making, and those are finance and medicine. So you'll hear um, quite a bit about medicine toward the end of the hour. So I will leave you to it. Um, I think it's a super fascinating book. It's really, really interesting again on both of these levels, and I hope you have a chance to get your hands on a copy, to explore it yourself, pay special attention to the commercial fishermen. Um, You'll hear about that in a bit. It's a super fascinating chapter and there's um, and including the interviews with the fishermen, there's lots of really interesting interview material in the book to explore. Um, and work your way through. So thanks as ever for listening. Um, Thanks for the support of the channel that that represents. And I hope you enjoy. Have fun. I'm here today to talk with Phaedra Daifa about her new book, Masters of Uncertainty, Weather Forecasters, and the Quest for Ground Truth. Welcome to the podcast, Phaedra. Welcome to new books in science, technology, and society. And thanks very much for making time to talk with me about uh, what I thought was a really fascinating book. So welcome, and thanks for making the time. Thank you, Carl. Excited to be here. So let's start, as is traditional for the channel, by talking about the big, broad question. How did you come to work on the sociology of science as your academic field?
0: (laughs) You know, the long or the short answer. (laughs) Any answer Uh, (laughs) you want to share.
1: So I
0: became a sociologist of science, I guess, because I wouldn't become a philosopher. So I majored both in sociology and philosophy. Um, I fell in love with philosophy, I should say, before I fell in love with sociology, but I came out of philosophy uh, realizing that the pursuit of universal truths, truths with capital T, um, is a misguided endeavor. So, therefore, if I couldn't become a philosopher, I wouldn't become a philosopher, I would have to become a sociologist. And that's my undergraduate studies. So, cut to um, I'm arriving in the U.S., intent on pursuing... um, exploring the foundations of knowledge but not having a clear sense of much else. I'm at the University of Chicago at this point, mm-hmm. uh, trying to figure out you know how to do that, taking courses on the professions. And then I stumbled into anthropology of, of knowledge and science course. Up to this point I knew of Kuhn, I knew of Mannheim but not much else. And now I'm exposed to Latour, North Cetina, you know and I realized you know, knowledge, but right now in the knowledge society, in the knowledge economy it is science and technology. So or, I already knew I wanted to discuss uh, the socially embedded truth and how it is produced. But now I'm beginning to understand that tr- truth and knowledge is socio-technically embedded. Mm-hmm. So that is how I'm starting. I, I became a sociologist of, of uh, science to begin with. And that is how, you know, it, what brought me
1: into my, all my projects since then, I should say. Is that. That's amazing, and and you are so articulate that I think if anyone ever asks me a question about anything about myself, I'm just going to direct them to you and have you answer it, because it's (laughs) so Well, don't do it as I did. It It was clear. Um, No, I love it. Okay, so... Fumbling in the dark. No, no, no. Um, So that's great. So let's come to the book that we're talking about today. So the book, Masters of Uncertainty, treats weather forecasting as what it calls arguably the most iconic example of a decision-making task riddled with deep uncertainty. It understands weather forecasters as masters of uncertainty, as the title would indicate, or at least as masters at mastering uncertainty, um, which is, I think, a really interesting twist that happens in the beginning of the book. The book uses a very, very careful local sociological study of a particular community of weather forecasters to develop a much more broadly applicable sociology of decision. Making. So, Phaedra, how did you come to this particular project? And by this particular project, I mean both a focus on the sociology of decision making, but also on um, sort of looking at weather forecasters as a way to get at that larger conceptual problem.
0: It's a good question. So, um, initially, well before. Um, i decided this will ultimately and that happened at the book stage this became a book about sociology of decision making um, i was drawn to meritoriology for very clear sts sociology uh, you know science and technology studies kind of reasons and at that point more clearly and now this is becoming um, less the case thankfully um what we knew of science in you know, the production of knowledge and information was through laboratory studies, mm-hmm. um, experimental science. Um, and there, you know, we had a very good sense of the tinkering and the messiness, you know, opening up the black box, blah, 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 you know, things that we, as STS, I'm saying blah, blah, blah is very important, but as STS people, this is the Bible, right? And that's the, 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 the first contribution that one thinks about of what STS brought into the field of social science. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, especially as I was reading, you know, uh, you know, pickering the mangle of practice, you know, I was saying, how about nature? You know, how about the messiness when you cannot capture nature? How about, you know, scientists who cannot act in a distance, like Latour tells us? How about, you know, when you cannot have a laboratory to raise a world? How about those kind of scientists? And it it, it started to become more clear to me that most expertise now and expert communities kind of live in this hybrid space, not entirely the field, but at all. Not entirely in the lab, and I, you know, I was thinking of different case studies. Now this is the case when I'm, you know, trying to come up with a dissertation project, right? And I had several false starts. At some point, I was thinking of new science, and at some point, just you know, meteorology, right? Weather forecast. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know when these guys have it wrong, right? You just look outside,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? And that's what originally brought me to meteorology because this is a, a place where you can see science, but also how nature meshes up with the instruments and the people. You know, you have a more a much more messier way of imposing structure out of the noise. Um, and that's what brought me into the you know these negotiations in, in order to create some sense of what is happening. And the way that you do not see it in the lab, exactly because the lab is, you know, is created there to create a aseptic environment. Mm-hmm. Right? But some fields no, you cannot do that. You cannot bring the weather into the lab, not in the way you can bring rats into the lab, not in the way you can bring um, bacteria into the lab, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and that is what brought me into weather forecasting to begin with.
1: Excellent. Um Yeah, so we'll talk about the nature of your fieldwork in a little bit, but first, this is a project that started as a graduate um, dissertation, right, as a a PhD dissertation, and it morphed into a book. So can you tell us a little bit about that metamorphosis? Mm -hmm. Were there any things that sort of uh, changed uh, significantly in the transformation from one stage to the other?
0: (laughs) So I would say, uh, you know, in several ways they did. First of all, because unbeknownst to me, and that was a lucky coincidence, when I entered the field, when I went to the National Weather Service, and I did not know that, you know, I wish I could say I did, but I did not. When I, you know, hit the ground in 2003, the National Weather Service was undergoing a major technological transformation. We can talk about this, you know, later. Um, But that was also a moment of great... Crisis and controversy, which enabled me to see, you know, um, the weather forecasting in motion, and to see to see things that would be invisible because you know they normalize otherwise. Mm-hmm. But that also meant that once I finished the, you know, the you know the first book, which was a dissertation book, you know, got a job, or you know, um, I then. And I wanted to, to 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 think more about this, and I thought more about this. So things were already marinating in my head and maturing already. So I was already thinking more bigger as it is. But I also felt because I had the luxury of going back, what happens now five years later? And I've kept kept in touch with the guys. What happens now? Now where the you know crisis has kind of settled down. You know what does the field looks like? So I collected more data. Um, I, I started reading more broadly you know brought you know broad, brought in more other conversations and I, I, th- I, th- I saw that the book you know could make a bigger um, argument or could we in on a bigger range of conversations rather than just uh, conversation about STS and that is why you know ultimately the book then becomes a book about um The sociology of decision-making more broadly with SCS now and science, technology studies and the literature there weaving in together and becoming the translator, if you want, of all, you know, of theories from cognitive science, from organizational studies, from phenomenology, from pragmatist theory. That come together to weigh in to figure out exactly how are these guys, you know, how you know are able to master uncertainty with weather forecasting now becoming really important. Not just because they deal with the weather um, and nature, but really because you know uh, this is a field that you know where uncertainty is iconic. I mean, this is the butterfly effect. If you're thinking about you know it's the iconic status of weather forecasting and how they have to deal with uncertainty, is you know it's hard to overlook. And at the same time. As one reads further into the decision-making literature, weather forecasters, perhaps surprisingly to some, you know, certainly to me when I first, I had to think about it, you know, are in fact much of all the decision-making experts in quotation marks are the ones that are best calibrated. They have a better sense, that is, of when they are right or they're you know, when they can be confident about the decisions and not, right? So they have in this enviable they're in this enviable position. Um, to have a better sense of of how they're doing, not only because they have great models, you know, and we will talk about their models, but also because they are able to get real time feedback on their decisions. So this, you know, so then studying the decision making at the field of weather forecasting becomes a good case study for understanding decision making more broadly, and that is then becomes the premise and the and the aim of the book.
1: Fantastic. So let's get right into it, Um, and thank you so much again for articulating that so clearly. So the nature of your fieldwork—you've just talked a little bit about it. Um, You were at a particular office that's um, generalized and uh, I think pseudonymized, right? (laughs) As the Nibro Office of the National Weather Service, Um, and this was over five years between two thousand three and two thousand eight, as you indicate early in the book. And the nature of that fieldwork that you describe here included um, kind of being there as a participant observer. For cycles of weather reporting. It involved interviews. And as we'll talk about um, toward the end, I think, of our conversation, it also involved interviewing not just weather forecasters, but commercial fishermen, mm-hmm. right, um, and, and people um, that were consumers of these yeah. um, forecasts as well as the producers. So it's really, really interesting. And, and we'll talk about elements of that over the course of the conversation. But you just mentioned something that I'd like to kind of open out into and ask you about right in this early stage. And that's the important of pragmatist theory. Now, early on um, in the book, and I'm just going to very briefly lay this out for listeners to to provide a little bit of um, conceptual groundwork, and then I'm going to ask you um, to talk a little bit about pragmatism, okay? So you mentioned early on in the introduction that there are core assumptions that guide the study, and there are four of them, and I'm just going to read these out, and then we'll kind of dive in. The first one, decision-making takes place within a more or less institutionalized field of action that over time affords its members a certain stock of knowledge. Okay, so they have this institutionalization aspect. Two, this stock of knowledge consists of cognitive heuristics and decision-making techniques that help initially frame and specify the empirical context of action. Four, and then we'll come back to three. (laughs) It's it's within the evolving micro-context of action and the human and non-human others populating it that decision-making takes form first and foremost. And then we'll, we'll circle back to three. Decision-making action may not be rational, but rarely is it routinized or unreflective. Instead, it's habitual and eminently practical. Okay, so that word practical, right, and the importance of habit, this is something that comes up over and over again in this study, and you've just, as I mentioned, um, invoked the importance of pragmatist theory um, in kind of providing a foundation for what's happening here. So can you maybe start us off as we dig in by talking a little bit about the importance of pragmatism and American pragmatist theory mm-hmm. specifically as a conceptual touchstone for what you were doing here?
0: Sure. Um... I'm um, especially um, influenced by John Dewey, you know, who talks about deliberation, and by this he means judgment and decision making as a fundamentally practical activity. He says all deliberation is a search for a way to act. Right. That is why we think we just don't. We don't. Uh, there's no other reason for us to deliberate uh, other than the fact that we are confronted confronted with a troubling uh, instance, and we have to to find a way around it. Right. He says the beginning. Of you know, deliberation is a troubled activity, and its conclusion is a course of action which strings it out. So decision making happens in a particular context, and and by that I mean it is there because it needs to solve a particular task. It's very practical. It's very situated, um, and that is why you know even though it is beco- it becomes um, um, equipped. And it becomes streamlined through uh, particular you know, institutional support, right? How it will actually play out cannot predict it by knowing that organizational context of that you know, that institutional environment, but it plays out based on the particular ad hoc um, environment, I'm sorry, practical action, right? Mm-hmm. So basically my unit of analysis then is not individual, Right. As usual, the social psychology of of, uh, of decision-making, right, uh, psychology, would tell us, you know, or um, the unit of analysis is not the organization or the group, as organizational theories and occasional links with other sociologists would say that the unit of analysis is the task at hand, the specific task at hand, the particular problem, the decision-making, whether it be forecasting, whatever kind of problem-solving activity, is enlisted, to um, resolve, and that is what pragmatism is all about, right? It's pragmatic. It is you, know, you have you have to be practical, mm-hmm. and you're gonna enlist all sorts of resources at hand to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it, what is interesting here, and, and you know, you can stop me whenever you know <laughs> you want here, no, is gonna... that it's kind of ways in uh, in and kind can, can tries to explain stand on or when you know in discussion of practice theory like from Bordeaux to you know today's theories of, of practice you know uh, because ultimately practice theory ends up equating practice with routines with rote action uh, you know non-thinking um, um, unreflexive action and by linking decision making which is a, a fundamentally the word it sounds it's agentic right you make decisions right you are in the present with practice, decision making practice, this kind of oxymoron, right? It kind of tries to um, refresh our notion of decision making and to, to talk about habit and habitual action, not as routine, not as routinization, but habit is something that the pragmatists call something that are tools. That it, it's we are not. We are not. Um, habits are not. Put into us, we are the ones who decide and equip ourselves with habits, right? So what this, what decision what pragmatism does, and what my theory of decision making is trying to do uh, by moving beyond the individual and organization to look at decision making at the unit at, at the at, at the task at hand is to reinstate decision makers as the makers of decisions, right? As as something that is crafty that is um, locally rational, that cannot be routinized, um, cannot afford to be routinized. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is where pragmatism comes in, comes in very handy, along with SDS and all these other theorists.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and I think this is um, hopefully um, already making clear to listeners that even though this is a book about this very specific context, and we're going to get right to that in a moment, it's doing conceptual work that's much more broadly relevant, well beyond um, the context of weather forecasting, as fascinating as that context might be, right? And I think already that's um, becoming clear in your evocation of the importance of pragmatism and decision-making. But let's get to that context. So the first chapter introduces the forecasting operations of the broader organization that the local um, sort of a bureau, the local office, right, that you were mm-hmm. doing field work in is part of, and this is the National Weather Service, which was established in 1870. It situates the National Weather Service within a larger field of weather forecasting. And this introduces something um, that seems like it was a really signal moment in your fieldwork um, and, and something that's already come up very briefly. And this is this controversy or this crisis surrounding a transition to a digital graphical forecast. You talk here about the introduction in the early 2000s of something called the Interactive Forecast Preparation System, which created a kind of paradigm shift, in the words of some of your actors, right, Um, Mm -hmm. in which they were expected to come up with graphical grid formulations of their predictions. Now, briefly, can you introduce for us um, what you think is important for us to understand about this controversy and this crisis to kind of set the stage for where we're going to go for the rest Mm -hmm. of the book? So the reason why I put this chapter there and arguably it's a dense chapter. I tell some people to
0: skip this chapter, go into the more juicy <laughs> action chapters I think and it's then, juicy. Oh, this is I juicy. know, but for some people who are not so much organization minded, it's kind of it's a dense chapter. And some of my reviewers were saying maybe you want to put it later. But the reason why I put it there is exactly because I introduced institutional environment there to actually show, you know, how you know the task at hand, even though it is the first and foremost driver of decision making action it's really supported and depends. Um, in a fundamental way on the institution in which it is embedded. And we see this because what happens, we see a fundamental crisis, not just the institutional level, but the fundamental level of what is a good forecast? Who am I? Am I a good, good forecaster? To whom am I forecasting this thing for? Not because there is a controversy in the dramatic sense of "Oh my God, they bombed the forecast and ten people died somewhere," which happens, right? You know, but just because of this, of a very otherwise mundane thing of a change in tools, right? institutional, institutional, you know, means of supporting the task. Um, And this is what happens is, until this moment, uh, the National Service Weather Forecasters used the models, and obviously they they were very much still dependent, already dependent on their their screens and their computers. They were studying uh, models and and, uh, uh, guidance on their screens. But after they were done, you know, you know, figuring out what was going on and what the forecast was going to be, and they are doing that in their head, supposedly, right? Mm-hmm. Then they would turn to a text screen and they would just type out a forecast, a very, you know, clear, like, you know, very dry five, six, ten sentences forecasts, you know, um, of for, you know, the next few hours to seven days. And the forecast national weather service is, is in a seven day forecast. We can talk about this later if you'd like. Um, with introduction of the IFPs, or the you know, or the or more broadly the NDFT, the National Digital Forecast Database, you know, the digitization of the forecast. Now, what becomes digitalized is not the evaluation of model and observational guidance, which already was digitalized. What now becomes digitized is the production itself of the of the forecast. Now, forecasters are not just writing a text, but they are just now actually are painting the forecast on their screens and how they do that they start by by uh, uploading their preferred model or it's already a solution of a forecast solution by one of the computer forecast models right or a combination of that onto their screens and then they tweak it and you know, they have m- multiple tools um, you know um, software tools with which they can tweak that model to better fit fit into their vision of what the forecast is going to be so now it's always digital and then you have other tools like a text generator that you know that takes that forecast that is digital and graphical and then transforms it into a variety of outputs including the legacy text right and but that so that sounds okay fine you know still you have a text forecast what's the big deal but it was a very big deal, as it turns out, you know, because multiple things happened. First of all, these guys were saying, are, who wants this? Who wants to look at, at, at pictures, well, pretty pictures? Who cares about pictures? Um, people want a text. Now they were not writing a text. In the text, you can hedge what you're saying better. They were, there are less lines in the text. The resolution of the, of the graphical forecast is now 2.5 by 2.5 kilometer. That is a very fine resolution. Um, out to seven days, sometimes hourly, a forecast of two points. That is a lot of, of confidence in your forecast to put out there, where before you were just writing ten sentences. Furthermore, you um, from office to office, and there are 122 offices, I should say, the National Weather Service. The National Weather Service, unlike many other weather services around the world, is still highly decentralized, and that's a good thing. Um, but that's a different conversation, um, and, you know. It's and that's a, a very big debate now, uh, but we might not get to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point with this is, and before the forecast became graphical and digitized, you would walk, you could pass the. Um, the boundaries of the area of forecast forecasting responsibility of one office and enter another office. And sometimes if you were lucky, you'd be looking at two different types of weather. Because the forecasts were that different. But nobody would know. Unless you were driving and you were, you know, you had the focus and you were paying close attention, you wouldn't know. But now when everything is graphical and there's pretty pictures you see it online on, a, on this digital database, the different colours, right, and different values are different colours. They are jarring, you know. They are there, right? So what the weather services would do, and they had to do that before they could, you know, allow this um, digital forecast to become operational. And they had to delay and delay and delay the um, the um, official um, issuance of that forecast because of all the resistance was. Now all the forecasts have to be consistent across boundaries and of course forecast were saying but my focus is better than the other guys why should I give in right (laughs) so there's all this stuff now you know uh, that is coming up uh, you know driven by a mundane change of tools you know Um, and it was really interesting to see so so the institutional environment now was shook up and I was able to see that I understand really get a deep inside look um, without even you know planning to into the culture like what animates forecasting what you know what are they there to do And it allowed me to do that in a very exquisite way.
1: And as we move into the book, the next chapter actually takes us into really, um, uh, I think, really rich detail Mm -hmm. in uh, terms of your exploration of one particular office in which this is happening, right? And as Mm -hmm. you're talking about it as well, I'm thinking, like, just as a footnote, someone who's listening who develops TV scripts, a local weather bureau, right, given uh, my reading of your book, would be such a great setting for a fabulous sitcom so someone <laughs> needs to make a sitcom of this and hire you as an expert writer and you'll make millions of dollars and then be able to retire and it'll be amazing i'm really gonna make much What did you say? You heard it here. Okay, but let's actually get into this detail. So chapter two takes us into the particular environment of this neighbor office of the National Weather Service. This was apparently, and and I won't um, go into too much detail here, but just to signal for listeners, this was infamous for its, in, in the words of the book, for its challenging work environment, right? So at the same time, you make a very compelling case that this is Uh, a particular locality that lets us understand the whole, right? This is representative in important ways, but it's interesting because the book, um, at least in this chapter, mentions repeatedly that this was an office that was also known for being particularly challenging as a work environment. Okay. So the chapter, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, no, 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 go for
0: it. No, so I was, yeah, so the whole point of the chapter, and uh, it was here, right, so the first chapter, or the previous chapter was about, you know, the institutional environment, but now I'm getting more of the notion of environment, so now we're looking at the local environment, at the cultural level, at the meteorological level, right, and how, you know, practice is embedded in those kind of environments, and local matters, right, Mm -hmm. it matters, you know, to the institution, that is why it has decided to not centralize its operations, Um, But have, you know, know, divvy up the nation in 122 local localities, you know, meteorological and um, geopolitical and put literally put people there, you know, um, to forecast the weather. And they do that because they recognize uh, the microclimatic um, idiosyncrasies that the models cannot pick up, even as they become more, uh, the resolution becomes better and they become more sensitive it's still very difficult, especially in some regime and especially under conditions that are very threatening. You know, the risk is too high to leave it to central operations, but also because they recognize that different audiences and publics have different needs. So with the, the, an interesting illustration of that is the the Nibura office um, was, even though, you know, its, it's area of forecasting responsibility is 30 um, um, miles, you know, um, it actually was servicing for different states, or you know, you know, not all of them, but parts of two, two full states and a quarters of others, mm-hmm. and and it, which also means that, for example, for a snow advisory, the criteria for one of those states, um, because of climatic but also of infrastructure reasons, the threshold for issuing a warning was higher than for the other states. Right? Mm-hmm. So you see how the variability and, and locality matters. Mm-hmm. And uh, the National Service is very aware of that, even as, be, as it begrudges the fact that you have inconsistency you have organize, you know, you have fiefdoms, blah, blah, blah. And that's bad. And we don't look good. At the same time, it cannot afford not to recognize the importance of local embeddedness.
1: Exactly. And you take us into how this work, right? How this local work happens on a day-to-day basis. So the chapter introduces us to the basic routines of a forecast shift at the office from the moment that an incoming forecaster is briefed by the outgoing forecaster to the moment that she sends. And I'm using she because the chapter uses she, although most of these forecasters are men and most of them are white. So there are all kinds of interesting, like gendered and um, Mm -hmm. other kinds of analyses here, but um, to the moment that she sends. The forecast out into the world. Now, there are three main components of this forecasting task there's data analysis, there's deliberation, and there's forecast production. And you take us into the steps and the practices of each one of these stages. But one of the things that comes up repeatedly that's, uh, I think, particularly interesting, um, especially given what you've just talked about in terms of the graphic nature of forecast production, Um, one of the things that's interesting about the data analysis description is the importance of aesthetics and visuality. Um, So you talk about the importance, and this is going to come up again over and over again, of visual pattern recognition on -hmm. the part of the forecasters, but you also describe weather forecasting as something that is predicated on esthesis, right? A communal Mm -hmm. esthesis, shared modes of looking, shared modes of reasoning and doing. So before we move on to um, kind of the the Further chapters of the book, can you just kind of very briefly talk about this notion of aesthesis um, as it shapes what you're doing here? Because it keeps coming up after this um, in important ways in, in the other chapters as well.
0: Right. So, this notion um, I, I picked up from Aristotle, um, who talks about aesthesis, and I, I mentioned, I talk about this here as so a material, meteorolo- aesthesis. Um, but it, you know, it's, it's you know the, the fundamental point is of this thesis, which is situational awareness. Um, so, what the institution does, you know, the National Order Service as you know, our, our organization, but the whole profession in general is given that, uh, and he has to recognize this. Given that our perception, our perspective is positional, meaning that. Uh, our sense of what's going to happen is going to be biased one way or the other. And this is, this is coming from, um, from uh, psychology, uh, um, cognitive science, you know, that we are um, prey, as humans, we are prey to particular biases um, in our decision-making. Um, what the National Weather Service does is it makes a virtue of the fact that we are biased. Right as humans, that we are given informational and time constraints, we are, we are prone to pick up particular clues and make decisions based on them, even though they are not. Food. We don't, you know, don't have all the information that we could have, and that's where biased. So what it does is it is purposefully biasing decision makers to particular way of looking um, and understanding and deciphering and evaluating the weather and acting. So. It, it inculcates them, them with a particular, what I call meteorological esthesis, a particular way of that that is epistemic, but that's very much also aesthetic, of of, of, of looking and evaluating the models, it's a very much aesthetic way of looking at it. And so you know they can so especially when they have don't have a lot of time, uh, in situations that there's not much time to act, um, they it's visual cues that really drive how. You know, and they don't don't have time to act. They, they actually have to pick very quickly on, on visual cues and, and and push the trigger, and that is something that happens at the very visceral visceral level. They see something and just doesn't it looks bad, mm-hmm. And they they you know especially in, in, in convective uh, weather system in, in summer weather, which is very fast. There's little time to act. The cues that they learn, you know, when you see this, when you see um, a cell, you know, look like a seahorse push the button, like, you know, act, mm-hmm. uh, issue a warning. There are visual cues. So it's a very aesthetic way of, 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 of inculcating, um, priming these guys of making decisions, of, of imbuing them with situational awareness. And they will do that in order to um, make make particular, you know, organizationally approved solutions, decision-making solutions, attractive to them, again, an epistemic, but also on an aesthetic and practical uh, grounds, but but also to shield them, from other possibilities, right, and and that is what I mean by meteorological estheses, you know? and. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, one of the things that you just mentioned I just want to briefly touch on um, is really interesting and important in ways that might not be immediately obvious or the uh, the relevance of which might not be immediately obvious to listeners. And this is um, your invocation of the importance of pattern recognition for convective weather and in summer Mm -hmm. forecasting. This was actually, for me, as a consumer of weather Mm -hmm. forecasts, right? And we'll talk about that a little bit toward the end of our conversation, but I don't tend to think, or I didn't before reading this book, about the fundamentally different craft um, and the different kinds of practices that go into forecasting in the summer versus the winter, right? I mean, we look at the forecast, we take in the forecast, the forecast is the forecast, but one of the things that happens specifically in Chapter 5 Um, So this is why I'm mentioning this for listeners, is that you talk about the importance of um, kind of convective weather, which is something that's characteristic of the summer, um, and the very different ways of looking and the different timescales and the different kinds of practices that um, are undertaken by weather forecasters in the summer versus the winter. Um, So we'll get to that briefly when we talk about Chapter 5 and the temporal regimes of meteorological decision-making, but I just want to mark that as something that I think is, is particularly interesting here um, in terms of how you're helping us as consumers actually see um, and understand right the kinds of practices that are producing the objects um, that we're consuming. Um, so for me, that was actually transformative um, in perhaps ways that are unexpected. But oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, so thank you. Um, so let's actually move on, though, from here. And thank you for um, opening up this notion of a thesis. So as we move from chapter two to three, um, you look at what you call the omnivorous appetite for information on the port part of the forecasters. Um, so this is really interesting, and you introduce for us the very different kinds of information that they're taking in in order to make these predictions. And those include not just data, but in, in different ways, in different contexts, uh, the materiality of the weather, right? Looking out the window um, or going outside to feel the rain um, in terms of how these forecasters are managing infor- information. So this is a really, really interesting part of the chapter. What I would like to ask you to open up a little bit is a notion that you use to make sense of these practices and this is a notion of collage Mm -hmm. you invoke collage as a way of making sense of the processes of what you call assembling appropriating superimposing juxtaposing and blurring information here so can you talk um for us about the importance and the nature of collage here
0: um so one of the main, I should say, empirical puzzle that kind of organized my, my research once I entered the field was uh, the, the fact that, this, that here are these guys that have all this weather in front of them. And in fact, this is very animated weather. You know, uh, they, their models are looping. You know, it, the weather in, not in a real sense, but in a very, you know, near real sense comes alive on their screens and they have a lot of weather to look at. And yet almost daily, in in quite patterned ways, they still go outside to look for themselves what is, in quotation, really going on. So what is this about the ontology of the weather? Why, you know, the different ontological registers of the weather that they are um, enlisting to understand, to make sense, to uh, resolve the determinacy determinacy of uh, the atmosphere and to come up with a, a forecast? Um, becomes important and especially the fact that they have to go outside again to deal with nature. Right? Um, how do they do that? Right? It, the notions that we have uh, so far from STS um, uh, are not satisfactory because these are not kind of this these are not um, types of data that are easily assembled together. They are not seamlessly assembled. You know, Latour you know uses uh, notions. Of of um, multiple cards, you, like you, you taxonomize them, right? And that's am you know, making up a verb. Uh, But you know, they're, they're stuck, but, but these are unequal pieces; they're empty pieces. How do they create order out of this? And that is what I was reaching for for a heuristic to understand how you know out of this tinkering. And they as you were saying, they have developed this this you know they have developed this omnivorous taste for information to overcome the the you know the limited amount of data even though it's a lot of data it's still limited um, uh, data to to, re- to resolve the uncertainty of of weather forecasting you know so they have collected all this 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 smorgasbord of data how do they re- reconcile it into something that they they can distill then and produce a seamless Forecast. and that is where the collage made a lot of sense here and um, and the collage exactly it is, is this it, 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 it provides this notion of of craftiness of art and but also science mm-hmm. um, it, it it alludes to the sense of um, you know of, of complex information um, where you know it, it, it's above and beyond its individual parts and it is not just a heuristic this is actually now what they're doing you mm-hmm. um, by graphically producing the forecast. So it can, it, it can be a powerful heuristic to understand decision-making, especially in a cultural of visualization technologies mm-hmm. of how decision-making happens now in a, a lot of expert communities of how, you know, at, at the cognitive level. But also, it, at, the, at least in the case of weather forecasting, it's actually a practical activity mm-hmm. because they cut and paste information and they put it on, on their screen which looks like a collage, until they use other powerful algorithms and software that it looks seamless Mm -hmm. at the end. But the activity is a collage.
1: And you talk about this also um, in terms of what you characterize as a form of disciplined improvisation. Mm -hmm. Did you want to speak to that a little bit? Sure. Um, So what is interesting about uh, this organization, and I
0: would argue increasingly about many expert organizations uh, uh, that – have to deal with this kind of uncertainty um, that cannot be reduced to risk, right? That that, is, that cannot uh, reduce uh, uncertainty into calculable risk is they have to actually celebrate uncertainty. They have to celebrate tinkering um, and improvisation. So that, in, which means then that it, that actually um, forecasters and you know in in their in the National Weather Service directive to so its forecasters, they have their protocols of how to to produce forecasts. Forecasts are encouraged to look beyond the information that comes to the screen for other types of data to reach for what is called, that's an actual term, that's an institutional term, a total observation mm-hmm. to use other and different kinds of data. Right? So here we see improvisation tickering um, as institutionalized action. That, that The kind of action that they become socialized into doing, an action that is improvisation and yet disciplined because they are primed through meteorological esthesis to favour and privilege particular data and particular combinations of data as the right, correct, um, and aesthetically appropriate also um, solutions to um, the weather problem of the day. Mm-hmm.
1: Great, thank you so much, Frida. Um, Now, as we move forward, you take us into a couple of chapters that we're not going to have time to really talk about in any real detail purely because of the time that we have left. Um, But I want to just mention and mark for listeners. So chapter four takes readers into the particularities of hazardous weather forecasting. Now, this is really important, um, in part because the primary directive of the National Weather Service, as you remind us here, is to protect life and property. So uh, because of this, hazardous weather forecasting entails particular kinds of pressures um, relative to regular weather forecasting and particular ways of working out risk. And you take us here into um, a kind of thick description of two weather events um, that represent two particular kinds of errors, right? There's a case of over forecasting of snow, which is um, what you call a type one error, a false positive. And then there's a case of under forecasting. And this is a forecast that missed the first snow squalls of the season and resulted, I mean, this isn't just like a you know, a oops conceptual thing, it actually resulted in accidents, right? And, and traffic yeah. standstills. And so the material consequences of these decision making practices really come um, out very, very strongly here um, in this chapter. And this is a type two error or a false negative. So I won't ask you to, to, um, to talk about this in, in detail, but this is not because it's not an interesting and important chapter. Which then leads us into another interesting and important chapter, which we've already talked a little bit about, so we won't spend too much time. But this is the chapter, um, chapter five, that looks very carefully at the temporal dimensions of meteorological decision making. This chapter identifies two principles that underline the logic of forecasting, the principle of risk. And of spatial scale, and it takes these principles together um, as a way of yielding what you um, give us as four temporal regimes and thus four distinct styles of decision making emergency, extended alert, near term and longer term. And this is the chapter that um, talks in detail about the differences. And and I think, as I've said, very fascinating. And I really, I'm not being hyperbolic here. I really think this is fascinating distinctions between summer and winter forecasting. Um, And so I particularly um, recommend this chapter to listeners, although I recommend all of them. Okay. (laughs) Um, But we need to, the reason I'm kind of um, quickly going through that is that I want to talk about the fishermen here. And the next chapter lets us do this. So let's get to the fishermen by talking about consumption. Chapter six looks at the relationships between the National Weather Service and its public by focusing on the consumption of weather forecasting. Okay, so let's start um, relatively big and then focus in. For you... What are some of the most important and interesting ways that the service conceptualizes and also engages its public? Um, When you think about the relationship between the National Weather Service um, and the way it's relating to its public, what for you are the most interesting aspects of that relationship? So this is a very, very, very hot topic. I mean, a a debate. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: right now and it it has been but it, it you know it's it's definitely you know um it's it's the the an existential fundamental issue uh, and debate at the national weather service and it's again um very hot i, I visited uh, national weather service very recently um um because the weather service at the, at the in the US is uh, is 100% tax funded it is our Weather service in opposition or in, dis- in distinction to weather services in in, in in the UK or in Canada, other places where they self fi- transitioned into self-self finance regime, which means the whole point of the weather service and why you know it it it, it can uh, lay claim um, to taxpayers' um, funds is because it. Services and it it provides decision-making supports to us. As they say, it protects life and property. Problem is, um, the the United States uh, is a big, pretty big country with a lot of people uh, with very, very different needs. So, how can you um, cater to these very different um, and um, contrasting um, and conflicting needs of all all these people, even? After you divide your um, your um, operations in 122 um, locales, mm-hmm. um, so how do you do that? How can you you know pro- produce a product that can be consumed right in a way that it, it, will, it you know you will justify your status as a um, as a, a pub, you know a science in the public domain. On on the other side, and I'm, 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 you know, I'm giving you a lot of information. Is is the fact that this this professional field is highly um, uh, there's a lot of competition now because the weather is the reason why um, everybody turns into the news. The weather pays. So right now, not right now for for the the longest time, uh, the private sector uh, and the media have been vying uh, for uh, the position of the weather service. The private sector, especially, uh, and again recently. Has been arguing that it should not just be the weather service that is uh, issuing um, warnings, but the private sector can do it just as well now. So there is no reason why the weather service should do that. The weather service should just be there to provide the data, and the data, you know, which it does already. Um, And in fact, the data, one argument goes, should not be free, um, because the 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 weather service should not encroach uh, on what can be done by the private sector. Um, so the weather service has, is highly pressed to justify its position and to, and to rethink what it can provide as a consumable, what are its products. So it, it keeps rethinking and refiguring who are its customers or its clients or its audiences. Um, and when I was, right now the discussion is very different again. I'm not going to even go into that. It's another chapter, another a paper I'm writing. Mm-hmm. But at that point... Because of, of the fact that uh, there are too many audiences, what the National Auto Service has tried to do and it cannot avoid is, is create this, what I call, imaginary um, audiences, imaginary publics. It creates functional constructs of what the needs of its various publics are and comes up with a forecast that meets their needs. And, and there are three, broadly speaking, categories of that, it is what they used to be called then the partners, which is um, other government agency, emergency managers, um, and uh, the the other weather services, private and media, as I said. Um, and then there are the stakeholders, which could include also other government agency, but also big um, uh, companies like electricity, etc., etc. We also have a, a, a seat at the table, they actually come and talk with the weather service and they they have a voice which becomes very important for shaping uh, the forecast as it comes out and make their needs very clear and and then in a big uh, blob, everybody else is general public and what I'm showing when I went to the fishers and the reason why I went to the fishers, um, mm-hmm. if, if I can say that, oh, I don't know if I'm please. anticipating oh, in question. Oh, yeah. I totally the reason why I went to something. the fishers and it also was, was one of the reasons why I chose the Nibor office out of other offices was because arguably um, the fishing community um, is arguably the last um, um, forecast user community to directly rely on the National Weather Service forecast for um, its meteorological information first and foremost, because most other uh, publics um, have the luxury uh, to, and and mostly, in fact, now um, get their weather information through um, the media and or uh, the um, private sector. But uh, it, it, it is only the weather service that issues a marine um, forecast, and that is why I talked to these guys uh, to figure out a. In what sense the the, the, the imaginary uh, um, uh, the functional construct of who the what the fishers want at right? the national weather service inside the Washington, national in that side, sorry the national weather service office the Bbora side matched maps onto. Um, uh, what fishers tell me actually that they want a need and how happy they are. Um, and what, that's how, I, why I talk to them. Right. And as it turns out, um, um, the one size fits all measure of the weather service barely hits, you know, uh, uh, hits the, the surface of what they want. But the point is this guy is exactly because they're such a sophisticated audience. Um, they're fine with that. Um, Mm-hmm. Which is also very interesting. The, the fundamental thing to understand, though, is, is uh, because I also did not just talk up with fishers who the commercial fishers and they have a very sophisticated understanding of weather information because they're so dependent on it and they're so educated, they have to educate themselves to use it. But also, even fair weather borders that I had an opportunity to survey um, equally demand a sophisticated forecast. A forecast that doesn't just give them a yes or no answer. It's not a, it's not a deterministic of a forecast as is the, the current marine weather forecast, but they actually want a probabilistic forecast, which is a big an issue, a point of contention now uh, with the weather service. How much, what kind of uncertainty do we, we want? Can we afford to communicate to the public, right? And the usual mantra, the old mantra um, that, that animated the profession was that people cannot afford to, they don't know how to use or they don't even want to, want, want uncertainty. They want to know if it's going to rain or not. They don't want probability, whether it's marine weather or, or land weather. My um, research and the research of a, a growing number of, 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 of studies show that, in fact, the public wants to, and in fact, needs to be empowered with this information. Uh, and and that is that is not going to um, diminish the credibility of this expert decision makers, but uh, but enhance our understanding of what they're doing and uh, help us and help us better protect our life and property. Great. Off my, my my soapbox now. <laughs>
1: No, that's great. No, it's and, very interesting though because these conversations are yeah, continuing. Yeah, it's very interesting. And it's and I, you know, I wish we actually had another hour just to talk about this chapter because these conversations with the commercial fishermen in, um, again the sort of pseudonymized towns of Cod <laughs> Town and Whale Town. Yeah, yeah, it's very thinly uh, pseudonymized.
0: It's, it's
1: like really, in, they're really, really interesting, and it also um, brings up this larger point that ex- that the extent to which the forecast that's produced by the National Weather Service is considered good, right, or is valued by its users is not necessarily um, have. Um, a whole lot to do with accuracy. And so you're talking, you talk here also about kind of ways of valuing the weather forecast in terms of quantity of information versus accuracy. And so there's a lot of really interesting nuance that comes out of this chapter as well. And in addition to just some fascinating interviews that I would love to ask you more about, but we don't have a lot of time. Um, So, but let's, as we're coming to now the conclusion of our conversation, if you can believe that, I do want to spend just a little bit of time before we wrap up talking about the final chapter because this is a really important chapter. So this final chapter, chapter seven, acts in lieu of a conclusion to articulate the main components of the analysis that's been worked out in the preceding chapters. And it then tests out that model, this decision-making model, in two decision- making fields, the field of finance and the field of medicine. So here, um, the chapter restates the main thesis of the book. And I think it's worth doing that very briefly right here. This is I'm reading directly, from pages 197 to 198 here, here's the thesis that it restates. Decision-making is fundamentally a practical activity that relies on available heuristics, techniques, and resources. As determined by both the objective at hand and the material and symbolic context of action, to fashion a provisionally coherent solution to routine and non-routine challenges. Okay, so that's the main thesis of the book, and then what this chapter does is it kind of tests out the uh, this idea, this conceptual um, contribution in these two fields that I mentioned. So the first field is finance. Um, Here, one of the things that's interesting and that happens is that the focus shifts, as you show us, from, um, as we move from weather forecasting to finance, from natural to social phenomena, and importantly, the importance of performativity of judgment and decision making comes in. But what I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about is not finance, but medicine. Um, and the reason I'm asking you this is that I peeked at your website and noticed <laughs> that maybe what you're working on now might um, yes. be related to medicine. Yes. So it feels like this is also a good opportunity to maybe yes. talk about that. Okay, so here um, you also talk about the shift from weather forecasting to medicine entailing um, other kinds of shifts from prognosis to diagnosis and from prevention to intervention, so, Phaedra, can you tell us about this um, case of medicine? For you, what is most interesting, um, like what comes out most interestingly for you about this case study when we shift from weather forecasting to test this hypothesis in the field of medicine?
0: Sure. And, and as you mentioned, this is, you know, my current um, book length uh, project Um that I'm pursuing, and I'm specifically I'm pursuing um, this in in the case of cardiology uh, practice, more specifically, um, And what is interesting here it's in in multiple ways. While I was in the field, I, I kept coming back to physicians um, in the way uh, whether forecasters. See what they're doing. Is a calling? Which the only other uh, profession that readily comes to mind is doctors. They, you know, doctors always want to, always knew they want to be doctors from the time they were six. The same way with with weather forecasters, but also, you know, there are very interesting difference here, which you know beg the question to what extent what I'm proposing here as a conceptual framework of of decision making action actually holds um, in supposedly very distinct. Uh, Fields in cases where it's not prognosis or prospective action, more um, generally that is foregrounded and privileged, but what um, but it is diagnostic action. And um, there's a, there's a literature um, about medicine that that actually laments what is called the ellipsis or the, the emphasis of prognosis. And in fact, now that I'm in the field, it, it's 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 really stark. You know, doctors talk are fixated on 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 diagnosis and treatment prognosis which is kind of in my you know being greek right <laughs> for you know <laughs> diagnosis and prognosis are the two, two, two bookends they go together like a horse and carriage right um no it is a, a diagnosis and treatment a prognosis is there but it is kind of it is assumed to be there so they are not so in, in medicine they are not directly trained so how, what does this mean? Is prospective action and, and the model I'm, I'm, I'm providing there to, to discuss how decision-making happens by, you know, that, that foresight drives action not, um, not valid and um, and what I'm finding is that, in, and what we, ha- we know in the puzzle, you know, is that in fact prognostications, even though f- for, um, sorry, uh, uh, physicians are not trained in prognostications and prognosis, prognostications are in fact everywhere. In, in um, medical practice, um, it, it drives decision making because, um, depending on where you think this patient is going and the outcomes you're anticipating, it it, it actually determines your diagnosis, your your uh, your classification of the patient. And um, cardiology is a very good example. And the reason why I choose it is because it provides me and us um, with different temporal. Um, Opportunities for action. You have chronic patients, bigger futures, and then bigger room to Um, But you have also they you have um, critical care and you have um, emergency care in cardiology. So I'm able to understand. You have temporality that I'm exploring in the case of weather forecasting, comparing um, short term, long term, emerg- emergency with extended um, alerts. I'm doing this in um, in cardiology, but also the 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 arc of the future is much much longer we're talking about not seven days as in meteorology but we're talking about a life so how does this play out how you know so am I able to expand my model there and the other thing about cardiology just to be very quick is you have a case um, that you do actually now have um, um trials um, and evidence-based medicine, and how does it play out? How does this institutional information support play out in practice, in action? How do these guys then make practical knowledge and make practical individual judgment based on those information? How does evidence and experience collide in action in the medical field when you actually have humans, you know, just are there to consult like where the forecasts are, but actually to intervene, to heal. So things have become more complicated, interesting, and bloody. Uh, (laughs) Forgive my pun.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much, Phaedra. Now, there's a whole lot more, obviously, that we could talk about. Um, The book is very rich, but we are at the end of our conversation. Now, given that, is there anything in particular that didn't come up but that you'd like to mention um, for listeners, and perhaps um, especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers?
0: I I don't want to backtrack, but, you know... um, you know what, no, I'm going to put a, put a full stop here, you know, and especially since we talked about my, my, my new project, I think um, that I can put on a, a full stop and invite
1: people to jump into the book <laughs> and pick and choose. Excellent. And, and you've already very generously given us um, a very brief introduction to the new project, but is there anything else that you'd like to mention or that's currently um, inspiring you that you're currently working on now that the book is out?
0: Since we're on medicine, one more thing, and I was already talking about this about these different temporalities, more temporal regimes. What is also fascinating, which I did not, given you know the uh, the operations of the weather service or the nature of the piece there, I, I, I did not have an opportunity to uh, observe. But also, but it's also is very important in decision making in other decision making fields, and I have an opportunity to see in medicine is the fact that you have an interaction between different regimes. So, uh, so you have. Um, short-term results and long-term results vying for attention. Which one you know, do you privilege as you make your decision? And of course, it happens everywhere. Um, you have to um, you know, decide which one to, uh, to privilege and pay attention first. But what is interesting with medicine, um, and it becomes uh, more um, rich in, in medicine, is the fact that you have to contemporaneously at the same time look at both because the point is not just deal with them, but actually heal. And how that interaction, this balancing plays out, you know, I've identified patterns of how this happens in particular context. So I'm having a lot of fun doing that and really expanding on my my previous temporalization of of decision-making action.
1: Well, thank you so much for making the time, Phaedra. It's really, really genuinely been a pleasure um, and best of luck in the work that you're doing right now. Thank you so much. It was fun. You have been listening to the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today, and I'll catch you next time.